0: Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor in your window. All upward, up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by author and public defender Gene Bishop and conservative attorney Judith Sherwin, and later in the broadcast the Council General of Germany in Chicago, Wolfgang Messinger. And thank you very much for joining us. Our phone lines open one 800 we're coming to you from our studios at AM 560, The Answer. Uh, that's WIND Radio just outside Chicago in Elk Grove Village. We'll be here for the next two hours talking about a variety of things. I should mention that uh, later in the broadcast, around 7.30, uh, we're going to be joined by the Council General of Germany uh, for uh, the Chicago land area in the Midwest, uh, Wolfgang Messinger. And we're going to be talking about... German Germany's perspective on what's happening between Russia and the Ukraine. There's been a lot of uh, I guess some negative publicity about what the Germans are up to and uh, we will talk about that uh at around 7:30 this evening when we talk about uh, Russia and the Ukraine but we've got lots to talk to about before that. Uh, with our guest Judy Sherwin uh, joins us. She has been with us for many, many years now, and also making her maiden voyage is Jean Bishop. And uh, Jean Bishop is a public defender, and uh, they're both interested in the criminal justice field. Uh, professionally, that's what Jean is involved in, and she'll tell us a little bit more about her life. And as the program unfolds, she's author of two books: uh, "Grace from the Rubble," rubble rather, and "Change of Heart." And and the uh, the, the second title to that first book is justice, mercy, and making peace with my sister's killer. And uh, I don't think in the 40-year history of this program we have ever had a, a, a close relative of a victim of crime on our program. Uh, your sister uh, and your brother-in-law and uh, and her child-to-be in her womb uh, were murdered back in 1990. It was a highly visible case in the Chicagoland area, and you speak from that perspective and also that you are now in the criminal justice field. Uh, you're a public defender, and the first question I want to ask just for our audience this evening as we begin to talk about your interest in the subject, um, I was amazed that you, someone very close to you that you loved very much was brutally murdered, most people, I think, probably listening to the show would become outraged and want to spend the rest of their life going after people who did things like that. You you went the opposite direction. How did that happen? Take us through the process, if you will, in a relatively short period of time. Take us through that thought process because that will tell us a little bit about who you are and some of the things you're thinking about deeply.
1: Sure. At the time that my beautiful sister Nancy was murdered, she was only 25 years old and three months pregnant with what would have been her first child.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And her her husband, Richard, was only 29. I was already four years older than Nancy was. I had four years longer to live on this earth. And at the time of their murders, I was a corporate attorney at a big law firm in Chicago, Mayor Brown and a a corporate attorney, and just dreadful at it, because I wasn't giving my whole heart to it. It wasn't deeply meaningful to me. I know it's a a worthy cause and and meaningful maybe to others, but I wasn't giving my whole self to it. And when Nancy lost her life, I thought, life is short and you have to do what you care about deeply and and what matters most to you. And I knew that her memorial couldn't be vengeance and bitterness and hatred. It had to be something positive, something life-changing. And so I became a public defender because I saw in the course of that whole investigation and the criminal justice system all the things that that I think uh, were wrong and those that needed an advocate um, and a good one. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's uh, why I left within months of my sister's death to become a public defender, and Mm -hmm. it's a job I've been doing ever since these 31 years.
0: And during that period... Is it correct to say you were a suspect for a while, or they were looking at you in a, in a strange way? Is that a better way of putting it?
1: You know, the Winnetka police were doing a wonderful job on the investigation, mm-hmm. and the FBI swooped in about a week after it started. It, it was the Winnetka police ultimately who cracked mm-hmm. the case and arrested the the person right. who murdered. And them. Wilmette
0: is just north of Chicago for those listening around. Yeah, the Winnetka country. actually is is yeah. where yeah, yeah.
1: where they were killed. That's a very um, wealthy m- neighborhood. Yeah, but the FBI had a, a separate agenda. They wanted to kind of hijack the murder investigation with a, a ridiculous theory that had no basis in fact or, or history. And I challenged them on it and said, you know, I, I think that you're not trying to find who really killed Nancy. I think you're trying to use this investigation on a fishing expedition, and I'm not going to help you. So that branded me as uncooperative.
0: And, and you you had done some work uh, th- they thought there was a link between you and the i r a that was involved in this murder uh w- that was the that was the hint that that got them involved right but it turned out to be a dead end right it it,
1: it was it was a preposterous theory i i was uh-huh. a human rights observer over it in things like trials of uh people in the jury list courts over there uh-huh. um and you know, core First Amendment activities of going over there, coming back, and speaking and writing about what mm-hmm. I had observed as a, as an attorney. Um, they were more interested in, in the IRA, and so to link them somehow to a murder in Winneck, Illinois, which mm-hmm. again was preposterous, absolutely unprecedented, never happened. Right.
0: Um, now, Judy Sherwin, the regular guests to this program, know that you are one of the more conservative, outspoken. Advocates of conservative positions on this program But uh, turning back uh, the clock 31 years or even longer when we can turn it back uh, You came out of a very left-of-center progressive background Uh, So how would you say your positions on criminal justice and uh, uh, Things of that nature have evolved over the last three decades?
2: Well, um, you know, obviously even all this time later, my condolences on, on what you must have gone through. I, I have no idea how I could have come out of that experience the way you did. Um, but so I, I must say, uh, it's an amazing story. I, um, thirty one years ago and and longer, um, I was more interested, I believe, in the civil rights abuses of of various law enforcement agencies. I did a number of cases in the district court here in Chicago representing uh, potential civil rights issues. Um, To this day, every once in a while, I get called in on a pro bono basis uh, and have represented prisoners. So I still look at the criminal justice system from the other side of the plateau. I, I do that and and the sort of abuses and difficulties in the system uh, that have always existed right but my position with respect to crime and punishment and and the police and the respect that are due to the police really hasn't changed that much over the years I suppose there was a point in my life probably during the 1968 convention when I referred to police officers in a not very pleasant way, uh, I'm sure Bruce can remember that mm-hmm. because we talked about it at the time. But um, in terms of, you know, people shooting people on the street, stealing their cars, breaking in their houses, mm-hmm. I never thought that any of that was okay.
0: When we come back, I want to pick up on that. one 800 That's the phone number. I'm Bruce DuMont. This is Beyond the Beltway. From Chicago, Illinois. Bruce Dumont, back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you, Roach, for joining us. We're talking about uh, crime and justice in the United States. We're just. We've sort of touched the surface, giving a little background information uh, about our guests this evening. But I want to kind of delve right into it, and uh, I want to look at a contemporary issue and find out if there's anything that you could recommend from your fields of from you know from many years ago or from uh, the daily active activity as a as a as a member of the of the court uh, through uh, uh, working with them on a regular basis as a public defender. Um, the people that you meet as a public defender, first of all, generally speaking, you're you're in Illinois, so again, there may be people around the country, uh, and it may be different in their jurisdiction, but uh, in Illinois, is a public defender uh, given to someone, or do they select someone, or do you have to take anyone that a judge says, we want you to handle this case?
1: That's What's a great th- question. I know that there are different rules in different jurisdictions. Yeah. Some people, uh, some jurisdictions have private attorneys that are hired and paid by the state. But we are full-time public defenders. So I work for the Cook County Public Defender, which is the largest public defender office in the country. And we're the largest unified court system in America um, because places like L.A. and New York City are broken up into kind of boroughs. Mm -hmm. But we're this one large system. And we have about 450 full-time public defenders that do everything from representing juveniles... Uh, to representing, you know, uh, as I do, people charged with felonies. And we are assigned to different courtrooms, and we take the cases that come in. We they People automatically get us if they can't afford their own an attorney, and that's about 85% of adults and 95% of juveniles need a public defender okay. in County.
0: And, again, that person, it could be a small crime or it could be a murder or attempted murder.
1: We do everything from traffic to homicides.
0: On this particular issue that's happening in this jurisdiction, in the county of Cook and also all over the United States, there are local uh, states' attorneys or district attorneys that are being criticized heavily by the news media and many conservatives and Republicans and some Democrats as well for being too lenient that they'll take a what they would describe as a minor crime and they will slap someone's wrist with it. They wouldn't put them in prison. They would give them some sort of you know parole, uh, but they don't go to the slammer for any significant period of time. And many people in this country thinks that's think that's soft on crime. As someone who is in the system, how would you describe someone who is charged with a crime like that? And let's say it's even petty burglary how do you, How do you deal with it personally and professionally? Is it a big deal or not
1: it 's always a big deal to be arrested because you 're talking about having your freedom taken away potentially my uh, The people I represent charged with felonies are looking at you know potentially life sentences in prison. I just uh, got finished plea bargaining a case where my client could have gone to jail for the rest of his life and he 's only twenty six years old. And so everyone takes it very seriously. It's not even just the potential loss of freedom. It's a loss of job opportunities. It's the right of loss of certain rights, like in some jurisdictions to vote or to own a firearm or things like that. So I, I take every case very seriously. And I do understand what's happening now where there's this wave of kind of pushback against what people call progressive prosecutors, like Kim Fox here in Cook County, Illinois. I know that um, my friend... Uh, Uh, Bernadine Dorn's son, Chesa Boudin, is a progressive prosecutor in San Francisco. And there's a recall effort against him because there's this kind of backlash against um, waves of crime that have very little to do with the kinds of reforms that he was enacting and more to do with things like the pandemic, like the rise of gun ownership. More guns always means more gun Mm -hmm. crime and more homicides. And, you know, a host of of other factors. One of the things that Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine just came out with a report very recently. Remember, in 2016, Chicago had a spike of gun violence deaths, especially among young people. Half of the victims, 700-something victims, half of them were 15 to 24-year-olds. That was right when our former governor, Bruce Rauner, a very conservative Republican, Basically, had a standoff with the legislature about the budget, and all of these social service agencies that were doing violence prevention, and you know, domestic assistance, and food programs, and after-school programs, and gang intervention programs—all of them, you know, they either didn't get paid or, or they went under. Those services weren't being rendered, and, and the Feinberg report tracks the gun violence spike with the lack of these services. So, it's a much more complex issue than just oh there's a progressive prosecutor.
0: Uh, Judith, when you've been on this program in the past, my recollection is that you've come down sort of hard against these prosecutors, many of whom had received some financial funding from George Soros. So what's your response to what uh, Gene has said about uh, the real problem versus maybe the perceived problem perpetuated by the media?
2: Well, I, I don't know that this is a problem that's being perpetuated by the media. I mean...
0: There are certain facts that you have
2: to take into account. And, and one of the things uh, with respect to this Feinberg School of Medicine report, there's a difference between um, correlation and causation. All right? So there may be certain things that seem to correlate. It doesn't mean that one thing caused something else. The situation with guns in Chicago, absolutely there are too many guns on the street in the hands of too many criminals. You need to take guns away from criminals. And guns don't shoot themselves. They are shot by criminals. The problem with the gun control situation is that it, all these control measures are aimed at people who are not criminals who have guns. So they're going to obey the law. The criminals are not going to obey the law. So therefore, you have more guns on the street and I'm not saying that, that the regular person, you know, having their own gun is going to be able to prevent crime. I, I don't really think that that makes a whole lot of sense. But but the, the situation uh, of blaming guns and blaming the pandemic, yeah, are some people bored and they don't have anything to do, so they go out and they commit mayhem? That's probably true. That probably was true in the summer of 2020. But... People running into stores like Bloomingdale's or Nordstrom's and running out with sacks of merchandise, this is not something we ever saw before. And the reason we see it is because as a matter of policy, we have prosecutors who, instead of following the law of the legislature of the state of Illinois, which has not been changed, have decided, I'm not going to prosecute that because okay, let, it's not let, very I want, progressive. I want to have that's w- not proper, and that's creating a huge problem.
0: I want to have Jean uh, describe, uh, You'd give your your assessment of that same situation, someone going in and stealing clothes from a, a high-end store.
1: Well, first, I really want to agree with Judy about, you know, that correlation doesn't mean causation. And that's why, you know, a couple of nights ago, NBC News was covering the idea that bail reform is somehow causing a spike in crime. And the expert that, you know, was on, you know, in their reporting said crime's going up everywhere. It's not just going up in the places that have bail reform. It's going up in all these other cities, too, that haven't reformed it. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 gun thing um, in Illinois, we have a gun add-on for every crime that you do with a gun. It's an extra 15 years if you have a gun with you and don't use it. It's an extra 20 years if you you know, have the gun, and you do try to use it, but you don't
2: hit someone... Do you someone. agree with
0: that? Is that a good idea? Well, it's
1: a great idea. It's a law. The question is, if there's nobody
2: enforcing okay, it, good. it All doesn't right, do anything that, that's for anybody.
1: But a good point. But, And, and, it's, and, and it's, is? it's 25 years if you actually shoot someone. If you... Are pretty, they
2: putting people away for that, or they're sending them back out on the street with an ankle bracelet? I mean, yeah, my point is, they can't do that.
1: Uh, yeah, my point is that that for my clients, they're not thinking of that they're not doing a cost benefit analysis in the moment where they, they use a gun they're they maybe they should but they don't this is not who they are it's not how they think they don't do that kind of reasoning they just they their reasons for using a guns are, are their own and have nothing to do with the kind of logic that rational adults often you know use so the, these sorts of things aren't the things that that really bring crime down
0: what is the common denominator of the people that you deal with? Primarily, let's focus on the juveniles. What's the common denominator? Oh. If we were to make a whole uh, you know, index of, of their lives, a checklist of their lives, what would be the similarities we would see the most?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. I wrote a Huffington Post piece about this once. It's the lack of any sort of caring adult who... Is taking care of them. The common denominator is usually absent dad, usually or absent parent, being raised by a grandparent or some you know aunt that has a house full of kids. Uh, poverty, neighborhoods that are uh, dangerous, violent, sexual abuse against them when they're young, or other types of abuse, hunger. These are. You know, I I read these. They're called PTIs, pretrial investigations, and it's basically a biography of this whole person's life. It's done Mm -hmm. by our probation department. Where were you born? Where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? What kind of neighborhood? What kind of gang involvement might you have had? You know, psychological issues. It's a tale of woe, and it's the same tale almost always.
0: When you look at that, that that report. Can you project, even before you go to court, because you're, you're there to give them their day in court and to try to defend them against whatever crime they've been charged with, can you look at that and basically predict who's going to be either dead within five years or spend the rest of their life behind prison, just by looking at the report?
1: You know, sadly, that's very true. I've had clients where I, I've looked at the trajectory of their lives and crimes, and I wonder how much longer they'll be on this
0: earth. Okay. We've got a pause. Judy, I want to hear from you as well. 1-800-723-8289. 80289 i am Bruce Dumont from coast to coast and border to border. Give us a buzz. 1-800-723-8289. To back and Beyond the Beltway, thank you very much for joining us. In an hour, we're going to be joined by Wolfgang uh, Messinger. He is the General Counsel for Germany in Chicago, and he's going to be talking about the German perspective of what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine. He's got a unique perspective, and we will hear that uh, in an hour on our program. Uh, we're talking with Gene Bishop and Judith Sherwin. Uh, we're talking about criminal justice and 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 societal problems and. Uh, Gene, you're making your maiden voyage. Uh, Give everybody a little background on who you are. I know you've written a couple of books, but tell people what you're doing now.
1: Um, well, now I'm a Cook County public defender. Uh, that's my day job. I also am on a number of boards uh, that deal with law reform mm-hmm. uh, and clemency. The Illinois Prison Project is one that does uh, clemency petitions for people that are, are uh, have served long sentences in prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, Restored Justice Illinois is one that wants to reform overly harsh laws, especially for juveniles.
0: Mm-hmm. And also you've written uh, two books, so let's talk about I that. I
1: have, yes. I've written two books. One is Uh, called Change of Heart, uh, Justice Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer. And it's the story of my sister's uh, and and brother-in-law's murder and my um, uh, change of heart about the person who committed the crime. He was a 16-year-old boy who lived a few blocks away from him, from them. And, uh, and he's still in prison now. Yes, he's doing a life sentence for killing mm-hmm. uh, them and for killing the baby. Mm-hmm. And, the, and he's
0: never acknowledged that he did it. He has. He has. So he has. He has, okay. he
1: has apologized to me, and oh. we are. Okay. Yeah. And, and the book is about the my process of forgiveness, and and I'm uh, I I have visited him in prison, and we we have stayed in contact. Hmm. He's very remorseful about what he did. He's he's a 47 year old man now. And not the 16-year-old boy who pulled the trigger.
0: Now, your second book is called Grace from the Rubble, and it's about a relationship between two men. And I want everybody listening to the program now to listen carefully who these two men are because there is a bond between them, a positive bond that you deal with in your book, Grace from the Rubble. Who are these two people?
1: They are Bud Welch, whose only daughter, Julie Marie Welch, was murdered in the Oklahoma City bombing at just about the same age as my sister Nancy. Julie was 23. And the other man is Bill McVeigh, the father of his only son, Tim McVeigh, who is the bomber that took the lives of 168 people, including three pregnant women like my sister Nancy. How did you get
0: them together?
1: I actually did get them together. It was a nun named Sister Roz Rostekowski who um, put the two of them together. Bud Welch started out hating Tim McVeigh and wanting him dead, wanted a sniper to just take him out on the way Mm -hmm. to court. The death penalty wasn't even swift enough for him. But then he saw that the vengeance and hatred was eating him up inside, and he started feeling great empathy for Bill McVeigh as a father He said he saw him on the news being interviewed and said that he saw this pain in that man's eyes that he understood as a father. So Bud traveled all the way to Buffalo, New York, outside of Buffalo, where Bill lives. And Sister Roz drove Bud to this meeting between these two fathers, and they found that common ground of compassion and empathy um, because Bud understood that he had a daughter who died and that Bill had a son that was about to die because the time that they had Mm -hmm. their visit... McVeigh was under a sentence of death. He had withdrawn his own appeals. He wanted to be executed.
0: Judith, if if Jean were not sitting right in front of us right now, we would be f- referring to her as a bleeding heart.
2: Probably, yes.
0: How do you feel about people who might think about that, listening to you this evening? I mean, you're telling your story very well, uh, but... There's a lot of people out there that, although they have great empathy for the the story you tell, they just can't get themselves to believe that you ended up where you are tonight, talking on the radio in such, uh, I don't want to say sympathetic terms, but certainly empathetic terms.
1: I'm the granddaughter of a four-term Republican state's attorney of Champaign County, my grandfather, John J. Brzee. My dad was a Republican and a U.S. Marine and a lawyer also. Um, I have a very, after 31 years of working with all kinds of people charged with crimes and having seen everything possible uh, in these police reports and crime scene photos, I am no uh, misty-eyed, naive about the fact that there is evil in the world that people are capable of evil acts. But I also don't have the hubris to say, for instance, with respect to the death penalty, that I know, like God, who should live and who should die, and that this person is irredeemable, that they can never be safely let out in society if they are rehabilitated and remorseful. And my example, I guess, is tar- Carla Faye Tucker, that even Pat Robertson, the mm-hmm. conservative evangelical you know, Christian Lobbied for the state of Texas not to execute her, mm-hmm. so I think I come from a perspective of my faith and um, my um, my life experience.
0: Judith, has your position on, on capital punishment evolved over the years?
1: Um,
2: not really. Okay. I uh, and and I would like to make one slight correction. I having listened. Jean, tonight I I wouldn't call her a bleeding heart. Bleeding hearts to me are people who take a look at various issues from from a distance, and and they look at you know groups of people. They don't look at individual situations, and I think she doesn't do that. Um, and and uh, you know they make pronouncements about stuff that have nothing to do with reality. I don't think that's that's what we're hearing tonight. And so I have respect for this position. I understand that you have that position. As I said before, I'm not sure I'm good enough to have a position like that myself. However, um, I guess I do take a little umbrage at the idea that Republicans are all bloodthirsty, um, capital punishment killers. Um, and, and I am not. But I do think, and I have always thought, that there are certain acts that a pur- a person will commit that just makes them unavailable to be in society anymore. And I do believe that in some instances, there is no such thing as rehabilitation and there has to be punishment. I mean, I can think of a number of crimes that have happened over the last years. I don't know, Bruce, if you remember, there was one horrible situation, I think in Aurora, where somebody met someone on the internet, told them they were going to get baby clothes the person come to their house and they killed a pregnant woman and stole the baby, all right? Those people, yeah. there's no, there's nothing redeemable about those people. I don't know what happened to them, but that's a good case for the for the death penalty, as far as I'm concerned. There are other situations. Do you like believe?
0: That. Do you believe in, so far as unique situations? I mean, this past week we've dealt with the, with the, the the attack on police officers. Shooting them in in New York and Houston and uh, Los Angeles and uh, uh, if if not last week in Chicago certainly the week before. My question to you is, yes. if you kill a police officer in the line of duty, should you should that be a capital offense?
2: Absolutely, because and it's not just the police officer; it is a crime against all of us. The police are per, for the most part, all right. Are there to protect society they are there to make it possible to go downtown at night and go to a concert they are there to make it possible to drive around on the streets and not be shot at they are there to preserve law and peace and order of the community and when someone kills them what they are doing, in a way, is when killing the up, community. And that's speak. the whole idea of the criminal justice system, that you, the community is a complaining party at the bar. You have killed the person who is protecting society, and, and
1: that is a capital
0: offense. Jean, an do you agree with that?
1: I think police officers are heroes for going out every day. To serve and protect, as they say, they risk their lives. They go into situations that uh, put them in danger all the time. I don't know how they do it, and I don't know how their families do it. And so I have enormous respect for them at, and for what they do. The but question, the question that, yeah. that, uh, of capital punishment for the people you know, who do the despicable act of taking the life of an officer in the line of duty and that is despicable, is that I'm going to quote Abner Mikva, our former congressman. He served in all three branches of government, actually, over the years. And he said once in a a speech at my law school, Northwestern, that the death penalty presumes that the least rational people in society, first-degree murderers, are going to somehow stop and ponder their fate and decide, you know, to make a rational calculus of whether to do something or not. They they don't do that. Someone who's capable a, a, of taking the life of a police officer is not undergoing so that. So then, w-
0: your answer to my question is what? Is, if someone kills a police officer in the line of duty, should that person be put to death if they go through the trial?
1: I don't think that we have the right to put anyone in our justice system to death. I think that that it's a it's not necessary it's more expensive than housing someone for life it is racist in its application it risks sometimes killing or, or putting on death row innocent people how is people. it more
0: expensive than keeping someone alive for 70 80 years it's
1: factually true that a death one death penalty case can cost millions of dollars i think the average in the state of illinois is about 2 million because of a host the of things process. Exactly, yeah. because the appeal process is mandatory. But Even the
2: appeal process is in place to prevent the racist, the racist uh, results. It's in place to prevent the mistakes. It's in place to come up with a just solution. The justice system is looking for justice. Justice has to do with balancing the scales. The complaining party at the bar is civilization, and you can't just say, oh, well. We're going to let it go because we've got, it's terrible to put them to, to, put them to death. We've got a
0: break, Chris Dumont back from coast to coast and border to border. This is Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. I think we've got a really great conversation going. And uh, we've got Kevin out there in Austin, Texas, listening to us on KLBJ. And. Uh, well, what does Kevin in Texas have to say tonight, Kevin? Are you there? Kevin, are you there? I am here. Now okay. yes. Okay. All right. Now, I, I just heard the book. That's okay. All right, we- so my question is I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead with your question. Okay, yeah. So the question is because with all of this crime, the inflation, the unhappiness, there's a right now more people identify as Republican as Democrat. And they're, they're anticipating this wave. Is it possible for the. And in, this program from Chicago, but I don't like to make it a local program and talk about things yeah. with people around the country. So, in general, we I guess. Do not, in general, we do not have, yeah. if, if people have listened to this program, we do not have a really effective Republican Party in the county of Cook, and it's one of the reasons why the Democrats win every office. Uh, in my view, it's getting worse, it's not getting better. Uh, and again, uh, if uh, if Kim Fox, the embattled uh, uh, state's attorney of Cook County, uh, did not was not uh, challenged in any significant way uh, a year ago, right. uh, which she wasn't, even though there was a very qualified Republican judge running against her for I- state's attorney, if if that didn't happen, I don't know when there's going to be a change. Uh, in in Cook County, and on that note i'm going to move on because I don't want to make it about local Republican politics. You made your comment. I do appreciate it. I did give you your quarter, but again, I want to get back to the it. bigger, broader discussion that we're we're talking about this evening. Uh, I want to go back to your job as a as a uh, as a public defender um, when you were assigned a case, how early in that case do you ask the defendant? If they're guilty or not.
1: When I meet with my clients, I have all the evidence that has been given to me or that I've been able to get so far, which is usually the arrest report, the incident report, and maybe some supp- detective supplemental reports, some body worn camera that they can look at, and I,
0: I just so you have a you have a thought in your mind before you ever hear them speak.
1: Yes, I I, I want to be able to inform them of of the evidence. Um, and, and Mm -hmm. I just, I just dispassionately lay it out. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, this person is saying this, here's what this body worn camera shows or what this surveillance video shows. Um, you know, I, sometimes I'll send an investigator out. We have our own professional investigators that work in our office and I'll say, could you go take a look at that street corner? Because they said there's a no parking sign there and you know, something Mm -hmm. like that. And, And I'll, I'll lay it all out for them. And, and people are, um, usually make rational decisions about their future based on what they see.
0: And how often are you right?
1: I mean, most of my cases are plea bargained, and I have the most reasonable, uh, wonderful uh, counterparts in the state's attorney's office. I, I love the prosecutors that I work with. They're fair-minded, um, and we usually find some kind of compromise. There are... Um, a smaller number of my clients that are are factually innocent and and those, you know, and of course everybody guilty or not has the absolute right to go to trial. I never make the decision whether we go to trial or not. They get to decide and they also get to decide do they want one in front of a judge, Mm -hmm. a bench trial, or do they want a jury trial? So they are all, if if anybody's pleading guilty, it's because they have made the decision that that that's what they want to do.
0: According to uh, published reports regarding Uh, the president's uh, selection of a Supreme Court justice, in addition to being a black woman. I want to get your reactions to that. But according to some of the reporting, uh, the common denominator that he always looks for when he's appointed a judge in the past is whether that person has some record as a public defender. Judy, did that surprise you? Is that that an important... uh, common denominators? Because again, it's been reported as the most important thing to Joe Biden.
2: Um, I I, honestly, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I'm not sure why it is. Um, I think it bespeaks of of his idea of what the criminal justice system is about. And I don't I think he claims to have been a public defender for some short period of time. Uh, I don't know whether he was or he wasn't. But um, the the uh, the criminal justice system has to have two parts to it. It's got to have the prosecutor who's looking for justice. And the defense attorney has to make sure that they're preserving the rights of the defendant. And in their own way, they're also looking for justice. And the two of them together in this adversarial process are supposed to come up with the right decision. But if, if the scales of justice And uh, you know, don't exist anymore and it's all on the defense side, then then the prosecutor's side of trying to achieve society's justice, remember it, criminal case, the complaining party is society, not the prosecutor. And if we're always going to go with the defense, then society is never going to get their day in court. So the balance has to be there. And if, if Joe Biden... Doesn't I can see saying he would like somebody sitting on the Supreme Court who has been a prosecutor or a defense attorney. Mm-hmm. I believe that Sonia Sotomayor falls into that category, and I remember mm-hmm. when she was appointed. I thought that was a great, mm-hmm. a great point in her favor.
0: Mm-hmm. When we come back, we don't have enough time. I, I want to ask you the same question when we come back, because who knows? Maybe he'll consider you. What? But you're not black. Sorry about that. Maybe another time. Uh, on that note, we are going to pause. Our phone number is 1 800 723 8289. We're talking with Jean Bishop. She's authored two books. One is Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer. And the other one is Grace from the Rubble. And that's Two Fathers' uh, uh, Bond to. Uh, Reconciliation after the Oklahoma City bombing. Again, Judith Sherwin, a regular guest on this program, also joins us this evening. Fritz Goldman is sitting in the chair tonight. He's uh, running the show. I'm just uh, offering the words, filling in the music. We'll be back shortly with an hour number two shortly. This is Bruce DuPont from Beyond the Beltway in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, at the studios of AM560 WIND, Salem Radio in Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us from coast to coast and border to border and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. And remember, uh, if you uh, list or forget to listen to this program on radio or watch us on television some Sunday night, uh, or on the, on our Facebook page, uh, you can always find us. Just go to beyondthebeltway.com, and you can find the audio portion, you can find the video portion of not only this program, but uh, many programs in the past. So there's no excuse to miss Beyond the Beltway whenever you want. And you don't even have to listen to it on Sunday night. You can listen to it uh, taking a shower, taking a bath. i not taking a shower, be a bad, bad place comfortable bath. Uh, We're talking this evening with Jean Bishop. She is a public defender in Cook County, Illinois. Judith Sherwin is also a a member of the bar. Uh, She is a lawyer, and she's in private practice, and uh, she's been a regular guest on this program for quite some time. Jeannie is making her first visit, and uh, before the break, I asked about something that's been reported about Joe Biden, and this is not only this is based on all of his judicial picks that he has made for many many years. He always looks for someone. At least a resume item is that he he like he's impressed when he sees someone was a public defender. Now you're a public defender. Why do you think that would be so important to uh, Joe Biden to have that on at least the top of his list? Allegedly, according to these reports,
1: I think he said, and I think a philosophy that's guiding his choice here is that he wants the court to look more like America. There's a a wonderful law professor named Mark Osler who's a Yale Law grad, uh, worked for the Department of Justice as a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor for five years Mm -hmm. under Bill Clinton and Janet Reno, uh, Attorney General, and then went uh, into teaching. And he's been very outspoken in the past. and he, he tried a case in the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Scalia opinion finding in his favor about- About uh, drug sentencing, the disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine sentencing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's his, his case, Mark's case, Spears case. And he complained about the lack of diversity on the court religiously. That you know, at the time that he was talking about this, I think six out of the nine were Catholic. And he thought, we need to have more religious diversity. We want that part to look more like America. If you look at our court now, it really doesn't represent what America looks like. Um, it's un- kind of unbalanced in terms of uh, that it's mostly. I don't want to say too many Catholics. I do, I, I want, I, what I want to say is, you have.
3: Well, another thing, another thing
1: Mark points out is. That most of all of our justices have come from two law schools, Harvard and Yale. That's I'm, a
2: diversity that I, we ought to think
1: about. I'm proud first. to say <laughs> that one of the very few, shockingly few, justices that did not go to either Harvard or Amy, Yale...
0: Amy colby
1: Well, was, yeah. um, was uh, a graduate of my law school, Northwestern University Law School. Um, so it's... It,
3: there's all, There's all
1: sorts of, of diversity that we need. and why do we need that? Because we want to have people be represented these different points of view perspectives. We want it in our corporate life, we want it in our governmental offices. and we
0: you, say, you know when you're running for president, that your choice is going to be an African-American woman. How does anyone see that other than a partisan political ploy? And how does it make an African-American woman who is qualified, how does it make her feel?
2: Well, you know, I, I actually uh, had the opportunity today to uh, listen to uh, Ben Carson talking about this. Okay. And, you know, he, whoever he appoints now, this African-American woman, it doesn't matter how qualified she'll be. It doesn't matter how good she is. It doesn't matter how smart she is. Everybody's going to look at it and say, well, she just got the job because she's an African-American woman. And that's not fair to the person who's going to be sitting up there on the court. Nor is it fair to the rest of us who look to the Supreme Court to be the final arbiter of certain aspects of our legal life in this country. That's the, 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 the court is an extremely important institution. Does it have to look and like America? And they're supposed America? to be
0: ruling. They're supposed to be ruling on this issue. Right. Now, that's this. Well, that's that's, that's a, this. Right. Court. That's
2: this court, and probably I. I think maybe that, the next one. Well, that issue is up there right now. I believe yeah. the, the, the discrimination issue. So, it's um, if it gets argued before the new appointment is made, the new justice will not have anything to say about it. However, just the specter of arguing that this would be illegal in the private sector. Right. Okay. It would be, imagine if he said, the next appointment to the Supreme Court is going to be a white Protestant because we've got Isn't three Catholics a and three, uh, six Catholics and three Jews, and we've got to have a Protestant white person on the court.
0: How would that go over? Isn't it against the law now? Are, isn't there federal law dealing with discrimination Absolutely. That, w- that would make an utterance by a candidate for president, let alone the president, that he's violating federal law by saying what he said in the campaign? Well, he's not
2: violating federal law. He certainly, I mean, if he were running a business, he'd be violating federal law. when When he says, you know, I'm only going to hire. Basically, what he's saying, yeah. I'm only going to hire this kind of person, and I, anybody else need not apply. I mean, you know, Irish need not apply. Remember those days? Yeah. That's exactly what he's doing. Do you think that's illegal?
0: Do you think of the names that you've seen bantied about? Is there any one name that pops out as someone that you think would be good, or think is a slam dunk? Or I, mean, I
2: think the woman who's on the um, the D.C. circuit. Probably has the inside track, mm-hmm. and I really—I apologize—I don't know her name. No,
0: I. But I, she was just a. She just was confirmed by the Senate. Well, you know, for her listen. Position.
2: With all due respect, Amy Coney Barrett was a judge mm-hmm. for what eighteen months? No, yeah. not even. Uh, and and she also did not come from one of the Ivies. She came mm-hmm. from Notre Dame, which is no slouch in the law school department. But, um, and I don't know the background of this woman who's on the court, but she was just appointed. Uh, she has a very but, good reputation, and she, she, she went through the Senate, I think it was something like 54 yeah. to
0: something. Isn't, isn't the questionnaire for the president, basically, uh, to make a couple of phone calls, to call Senator Cinema to call Senator Manchin, and say privately, who are you guys for? Who, who, who are you going to say yes for? And then his answer is over because well, he's, got, he's got the rest of the team. And in many cases, certainly in the case of the, the woman that was re- the, the justice that was recently uh, confirmed uh, who is being mentioned now, uh, she got Republican votes right. as recently and as a year ago. I,
2: I, I you know, I'm going to I'm going to make a prediction. I don't think you're going to see a Republican uh, standoff on this. No, I don't either. It doesn't make sense. All right? Whoever is appointed to the court is not going to change the complexion, I don't mean to use the word, is not going to change the balance of the
0: court. I'm going to make a prediction. I think it's going to be the, uh, the, the judge from South Carolina, Judge Childs, because she's going to come with a lot of political support already from Republicans and Democrats. And I think she is my pick. Back shortly from Chicago. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, just a follow up word on my prediction that uh, it will be uh, Judge Childs from South Carolina that's ultimately going to get the tap I think uh, if you heard the interview with James Clyburn of South Carolina uh, earlier this week I don't think I've ever heard any political leader be more uh, demonstrative in his support for a uh, a nominee for the Supreme Court and he is uh, Joe Biden owes his presidency to James Clyburn Uh, she is from South Carolina and also uh, it's it's based on her previous uh, runs before the court she has already been voted on by Lindsey Graham and uh, t- 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 Senator Scott, so she already has two Republicans from South Carolina that would support her. Uh, I can't believe that uh, a quick phone call to Senator Cinema and Senator uh, Manchin might might confirm that, but I think she's got the votes, and uh, she is a she is a moderate liberal, as I'm told, a little less uh, liberal than the. Uh, the justice from uh, the D.C. district, so that would be my prediction. Mark it down. If I'm right, we'll play this over and over again. <laughs> and if I'm wrong, we will. Well, Fritz will have lost it somewhere in uh, etherland. <laughs> um, I'm going to come back. We do have a few minutes left, and then we're going to switch gears, and we are going to talk about Ukraine and and Russia uh, with our special guest uh, Wolfgang Messinger, who is the general counsel <clears throat> in Chicago for. Uh, for, for for Germany. Um, I want to go back to the situation in New York City with the high visibility uh, shooting and the subsequent public outpouring of support for the police officers shot down in New York City and a new police chief. What can be done in New York? I mean, they have some of the strictest gun laws in the United States and yet this one district, I don't know if you read the story today, but The the district where this took place, there have been 26 killings of police officers since 2016, Mm. 2017, correction. 26 police officers from one police district.
2: Well, it's hard.
0: what What do you do? what do you do about that and you, and now the people who voted they voted for a democrat but they voted for a law and order democrat if you will the former uh, you know police detective they want him to be the mayor they clearly want to clean things up and that was before he became mayor and his first month in office i mean the number of people that uh, that are being killed uh, and, and shot in the line of duty is just it, it's it's unfathomable it's unfathomable what do you do
2: Well, you know, you can't do something immediately, right? You have to start somewhere. But, you know, my my son used to live in New York. He was living in Brooklyn. Three blocks away from his house, I have seen people, I've seen videos of people, you know, somebody taking a video with their cell phone while somebody else is shooting somebody in the head. All right. Mm -hmm. No police around. Nobody responding. You know, eventually you read about it on, on, in the newspaper, or you read about it on the internet, and and nothing ever happens. All right. So until some of the, I mean, people just walk right up to somebody on the street and shoot them in the head.
0: But do we okay. know? But do we? Here's my question: Do we really know? About, I, I want to I want to separate the discussion between what we know and what we perceive to know, okay. based on coverage whether it's Fox News or whatever well, it's not because Fox you news. The, 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 this is
2: coming from Fox News.
0: No but what I'm saying is are you, are you saying that I can't believe that no one has been arrested for some In of these many
2: news. of these incidents no one has been arrested. Now given the and, and this is I will say it's pre Eric Adams okay mm-hmm. who is a police officer right. and and uh, you know we have some hope for him right because he is um they just arrested a homeless person who, who killed a woman, threw her in front of a subway uh, train at, at, um, at 42nd Street, which is beyond mm-hmm. belief. Um, you know, somebody else was shot in Times Square. person was arrested. You don't hear that stuff all that often. So perhaps, as, as I said about Chicago, if you have prosecutors who, who take a look at the laws on the books and go after people and arrest them and don't let them out. The two people that we're talking about, who the one guy who threw somebody in front of a train, and the other guy who shot somebody in Times Square. Well, the, they're in jail. The, they're the not pros- running around. The somewhere.
0: prosecutor, the prosecutor who's now been critical. He's a new prosecutor uh, in in Manhattan. He was sitting in the uh, the cathedral the other day, St. Patrick's Cathedral. With the widow of the police officer, Mr. Rivera. Who
2: really let him have it.
0: Who really let him have it. And he was there and he said that he was going to prosecute people who attacked police officers. Which I would assume, which I would think you would have done anyway. I want to get uh, uh, Gene's response uh, to this about what could be done in New York City other, other than, because here's what I want to know. I can't believe that there's that many shootings without any prosecution. I can't believe that it's zero prosecution. Now, under, de Blasio? under De Blasio, oh, under De Blasio, but I still don't know whether it's zero. Close I don't know be- to zero. because you don't you don't hear about that as often. If someone is 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 uh, charged, which doesn't happen at least in Chicago very often, if they're charged, you'll see their mugshot on the TV, and then it may be eight or nine well, months later before you ever hear right. More about but, the you're case. Not, but you're, you're I'm not seeing
2: mugshots. Yeah, no, you're
0: not. not.
1: So let's just take the homeless guy. What causes homelessness? In my experience as a public defender, a lot of people who are homeless is because they are addicts, have been kicked out of uh, their, the places they were living by their relatives. They just don't want them around anymore. They're mentally ill. They um, And so... To just take that one person and say, All right, if you knew that you were going to face this harsh punishment, would you not have committed that crime? That, that's ridiculous. There's a, a, a saying that's simple but true that hurt people hurt people. If you are someone who's dealt with abuse, mental illness, you know, addiction, things like that. Um, A lot of my clients have this, and they do these terrible acts. And So how do we prevent our way out of this? We're we're, we're approaching it all as if we can fix it on the back end by saying, okay, if you have this harsh punishment, I agree that dangerous people need to be not walking the streets. But the question is, how do we get there? Eric Adams, if I may, I've sat okay. silently for a while. Okay. Um, Eric Adams, former police officer, new mayor of New York, has emphasized community policing, of getting to know the community where you are working, have them know you. I think that that's an incredibly important first step. And he's just taken office, as you pointed out. And we have to give it some time to kind of have this transformation. But the problem with us Americans, I think sometimes, is that we want these very easy kind of simplistic solutions to what are very complex problems. And it's going to take all hands on deck. I I speak a lot from my Christian faith. And you talked about making us fishers of men. And back then... Being a fisher wasn't having this one fishing pole with this one line on it. It was a bunch of men in a boat with a big net, and these Mm -hmm. hands had to hold it, and these hands, and these hands, and we're Mm -hmm. all pulling together to pull these fish into the boat. Mm -hmm. That's what we have to do here. It's going to take the medical professionals. It's going to take the social workers. It's going to take the business community. It's going to take... You know, know that law enforcement and is going to take prosecutors and public defenders.
2: So, so I'm not advocating that whoever it was who pushed this lady in front of a train should get the death penalty. I'm certainly not saying that. Obviously, uh, I think I think we can agree that the people who are homeless, for the most part, um, I'd say in a very great proportion, are mentally ill. Okay, but the the issue the issue with this. Is is what do you do? Let's, let's step back a minute. What do you do about the homeless? Why do you encourage homeless encampments? Why do you say it's okay to have this? It's really an anti civilization kind of situation where we encourage people to be homeless in the streets. We help them to be homeless. How do we encourage? How do we encourage? How do we encourage? Them? Well, the churches, they run around, they get generators, they get clothes, they get all kinds of things. They make it, they make it almost home-like to be homeless. All right, and and by doing so, are are feeding into what is a situation that is is seriously uh, imbued with mental illness. If you go down to to Soho, okay, which is a very fancy place mm-hmm. in New York, where where my son has his office, there are drug addicts living on the street, shooting up on the street. And at least during the de Blasio administration, nobody did anything about it. Ho-hum, another day on the street. That's got to stop. You can't encourage that. You have to do things to clean that up. You have to do things to try to help these people to get out of these situations, which is going
0: to but take a great deal of work. And, and, just a minute, and money. And money, because because you nobody cannot, wants to you spend cannot, that money. You, can, you cannot you cannot say to a state or a federal government you cannot say that if you take mental health community service programs out of a community that that community is going to be well served. It isn't. It because isn't I, because those are the people that 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 Gene's going to run into someday.
2: Right. And and the reason the reason you have all these homeless. One of the main reasons you have all these homeless. It's because there's something that we call deinstitutionalization, yes. okay? Let's take all the crazy people, all the people who can't function in society. Let's not put them in institutions where we might be able a to help
0: them. A democratic idea gone wrong. Completely
2: wrong, okay? The Democrats Actually, I, think I, it's I, about freedom. The Republicans think it's about money. We And it's not about either.
0: we got to pause. When we come back... We're going to switch gears now that we've solved the issues of social ills in America. We're going to talk on the world stage about Germany and their role in NATO and their role at Russia-Ukraine battle it out. Month back, we continue uh, with, uh, uh, in studio, we continue with the Gene Bishop and Judith Sherwin. However, we are now joined by our special guest, Wolfgang Messinger, and he is the General Counsel for Germany uh, in the city of Chicago. And uh, we welcome him because uh, I wanted to have this discussion in the remaining half hour of the broadcast this evening because there has been a lot said and written about what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, and what the role of NATO is, and uh, what uh, what our NATO uh, friends are doing to support uh, at least uh, some of the get tough policies of of the administration and I, I wanted to hear because m- my sense in listening to the news media was that there was a lot of negativeness coming across against Germany that somehow the germans weren't living up to, uh, to their role in NATO. And I reached out to, to the general counsel of Germany and he joins us tonight. And, uh, general counsel, we thank you very much, Mr. Messenger. Nice to have you with us on beyond
3: the beltway. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to speak about, uh, this very serious, mm-hmm. uh, issue, the sit- mm-hmm. situation in Ukraine and, uh, Germany's position on it. Okay. We should also mention that before you were general
0: counsel here, you were general counsel uh, in 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 a large city in in Ukraine. So you have a special personal feeling for uh, Ukraine as as well as uh, uh, the issue involving uh, Russia at the moment. So let let me begin by having you clarify uh, what is the role, what is the mission that Germany has at this moment as it regards. Uh, to uh, NATO and the situation of involving Russia and the Ukraine.
3: Uh, just to add on, I have one of my posts before was also in Moscow, so I have been in both countries, okay. serving for for my country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let me let me assure you f- first that uh, Germany is fully on board uh, with all other NATO members and EU partners in hammering out a package of sanctions against Russia should Russia invade Ukraine. And I don't think there is any difference in the opinion with the NATO state members that these sanctions need to be severe, harsh, and crippling the Russian economy, and especially everything that is dear to the Russian government. And Germany is fully on board on that. And uh, we are completely participating in all, on all levels, in all discussions in, when it comes to uh, designing this package. According to a lot of the
0: published reports in the United States, they would add that because there is the pipeline, which is very important to Germany, and because it's very important to Russia, and that the two countries are working together on that, because there is this commercial relationship between the two countries. Uh, if push came to shove, uh, you may be asked to do something to a a commercial customer of yours that would uh, support Russia against uh, the West. Can you speak to that unique relationship? business relationship, and trade
3: that you have with Russia? Uh, there is no doubt about it that the sanctions that are already in place for Russia since 2014 have been felt in Germany and in the German economy probably much, much stronger than in the American economy because we are much more interwoven with Russia. But we are still the country within Europe and within NATO who was leading the effort and putting these sanctions in 2014 together and keeping that package alive uh, over the last eight years. And that was not always easy because there are some uh, EU member states who, are, who wanted to loosen them. So yes, we, we have a very close relationship with Russia in many in many aspects in the economic field. There were times when the, everybody thought this was a good thing because we then have a channel with, to talk to the Russians, with mm-hmm. dealing with the Russians. Um, and we still think that at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's good to have interdependency and in, being interwoven with each other. But in this particular situation, of course, our political principles, which is uh, sovereignty and independence of every single country in Europe, Mm -hmm. are much more important and that's why we are fully uh, committed to this package and let me just say something about this gas pipeline there is a little bit of exaggeration in the not only in the american media but in the media in general about this first a couple of facts um natural gas is makes only about 20 percent of the energy mix in germany and of these 20 percent 10 Half of it, so about 10% overall, is coming from Russia. So we are 10% dependent on Russian gas when it comes to our energy mix. Okay, that's a, a considerable uh, figure. That's not nothing, but that is not something that makes us completely dependent. And the North Stream 2 pipeline has been a commercial project which has been designed and started at a time when everybody still thought it's good to have connections with Russia, but it's um, not yet certified and the certification process in Germany is stopped at the moment for some technical reasons, but it's stopped and uh, it could be restarted, but it could also be stopped forever. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have said Nord Stream 2 is part of the package. And the Russians know exactly that uh, with an invasion into Ukraine, the possibility of Nord Stream 2 coming into operation is nearing zero. And so I think this is a, a, a clear part of the package. And uh, we are, and on the other hand, you have to remember that <clears throat> Russia is probably more dependent on our money than we are on the, our on their gas. Mm -hmm. because the Russian federal budget depends to two-thirds on the uh, oil and gas export revenues. So if they either can't expand that because new pipelines will not come into operation or even start uh, using energy as a weapon by reducing the deliveries, I think they harm themselves much more than they would harm us because there's enough gas on the world market which could replace the 10% that are missing. You mentioned that
0: uh, that Germany was very much in the lead on, on coming up and imposing uh, the sanctions of 2014. Can you describe what some of those sanctions are and are they still in place
3: now? They are still in place and some of these sanctions are That certain uh, goods and uh, goods that are useful, for example, for uh, building um, up the uh, Russian uh, high-tech and manufacturing sector, cannot be delivered anymore. Certain uh, goods from Russia will not be allowed in to the country anymore. Certain financial transactions are under uh, controlled and monitored, or even forbidden. And uh, we have uh, uh, quite a big number of uh, Russian high officials who are on a sanctions list, which means they can't neither travel to Europe nor can they have any assets in Europe. Mm.
0: Is there anything uh, that you were aware of, uh, uh, pr- uh, proposed sanctions, uh, right now that the Biden administration or uh, the German administration is thinking about to sort of turn the screws and make these sanctions even uh, more difficult for the Russians uh, to adhere to. What, you know, what What's next? How, how far can they be
3: squeezed? Oh, there are a lot of possibilities. You can, for example, uh, rein in into certain supply chain issues on high-tech uh, materials or high-tech uh, components that would uh, serve Russian military or other purposes. Mm -hmm. You can completely um, shut down Russian, uh, the financial involvement of Russia into the uh, Western world. And we we also have to think about we we should uh, we should use sanctions as a kind of a a sharp sword and not as a boomerang that come back to us and hit us ourselves as much as it might hit the Russians. Uh, But of course, you can um, uh, squeeze the the screw much more when it comes to financial services when it comes to export controls, when it comes to import controls, when it comes to movements and financial transactions and services, and of course, you can also, at the very worst case, start looking at all these uh, oil and gas exports and uh, and, and the uh, membership of Russia in the system of uh, financial transactions where
0: does germany stand on the possible expansion of nato to include of the ukraine at some point in the future
3: now first of all we start from the assumption and from the principle that every country can choose their foreign policy independently and themselves so um, we cannot agree or we cannot concede in any way to exclude forever in the future an expansion of NATO towards um, Ukraine or other countries that are on our eastern border. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, of course, that we are also very much aware of Russian security concerns. We have always been, especially in Germany, but in NATO in general. That's why we have created the NATO-Russia Council, which has been very instrumental in. uh, in um, discussing certain measures on both sides, which are considered as being uh, uh, dangerous, or that has been uh, mutually uh, allowed to to proceed, like for example, when we move certain troops within the NATO territory. Mr. Messenger, uh, I've got to ask you, I've National got to ask, you, Council, got got to ask you to later pause later.
0: right now. We do have to break for a for a commercial break, and we will then continue uh, with Wolfgang Messenger. Don't go away. On back we continue uh, with our guests uh, Wolfgang Messenger, who is the General Counsel of Germany, and Judith Sherwin and Jean Bishop join me in studio. And uh, Judith Sherwin has a question for you, uh, Mr. Messenger.
2: Uh, Mr. Messenger, it's it's really an honor to be on the show with you. And uh, I, I was listening very carefully to what you were saying, and I understand that that you espouse the position that it's really only ten percent of. Germany's energy needs that are coming from Russia. So it's really not such a big deal for Germany. However, if you were to cut off that source of income for the Russian budget, uh, that would be a big deal. So why not just say to Mr. Putin, if you set one foot into Ukraine, that's the end of our energy needs coming from Russia and you can find someplace else to sell your wares to. Don't you think that would have a pretty big effect on his thinking in the situation?
3: I think the greatest effect on his thinking has if we stay together, if the Western alliance works and talks as one, so he can't put a wedge between us. And everybody who tries to bring a wedge between us is eventually only helping him. And I, uh, secondly, I think the best thing is not to tell him what we are going to do if he does invade Ukraine, because then he might already get his uh, preparations in place. He might already have some some uh, ideas on how to circumvene it or how to uh, make it look that we have been the ones who are the aggressors and have have been putting him under pressure. Uh, Our chancellor and our foreign minister together with all the other Western leaders have always said, nothing is off the table. So what you you were suggesting is one of these things that is on the table. But What at the end of the day will be in this package, I, I can't tell you and I think it's wise not to let anybody know by now what we are planning. Jean Bishop's got a comment as well.
1: So it's an honor to speak with you. Thanks so much. Um, The New York Times had an article, I believe, yesterday. It was from the perspective of France and President Macron. And um, talking about the fact that because under the previous administration and there was such an anti-NATO tone coming from the White House, that it's made uh, the... you know, countries in the European Union more, um, you know, concerned about what might happen in 2024 that might be a return to that and that there ought to be a kind of a sense of a a realignment kind of among the the European countries and that that might be having some impact here. How do you respond to that?
3: Um, Maybe with two aspects. The first is that uh, In the four years of the Trump administration, we have, of course, learned that we have to be prepared to stand on our own feet. That's why we have started a a, a project and program of strategic autonomy for Europe, which doesn't mean that we kind of disentangle ourselves with the United States. But I still think it's wise to to look at uh, supply chains and to look at major major uh, assets we have, production facilities we have, for example, in the health sector that in case there, uh, there are uh, problems between the United States and us in the, in the trade sector that we can survive and that we can keep our economy running. And in this respect, we are also uh, looking at the energy sector and how we can make ourselves less dependent on energy exports from wherever they might come. And the, the second thing is, I think what is also important, especially for the people in Ukraine and the people in Russia and those people who are looking for democracy to want to strive to change their country to become a democracy, that we safeguard our democracies at home. If we constantly undermine the credibility and the trust into our democratic system and to our democratic structure, that's very detrimental for these people because then they start doubting is democracy really the, the thing they want to strive for and it gives a, a grind to uh, the nail of all those who say anyway democracies are in a decline autocratic systems are the best systems they deal better with all kinds of problems so I think it's very important for us to, to safeguard our democracy and if I may just add on as a as a German who has lived in Eastern Ukraine, uh, the, the, the very visible border between democracy and autocracy used to be the Berlin Wall. And this border is now exactly the line, the front line between Ukrainian troops and the Russian separatists in Eastern Ukraine. It's exactly the same line. And actually some of the crossing points, the border points looked actually almost like the border point between East and West Germany uh, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Good so point. I, that is now the fight, and that's why we have to keep democracy in as, 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 as safe, uh, a safe safe place. We have a minute left. What can you
0: say about the military commitment of Germany through NATO to uh, the effort uh, to dissuade uh, the Russians from invasion?
3: I mean... I know there is a lot of criticism because our export control laws forbid us to, to export lethal weapons to, to Ukraine, but that's our history, that's the law, and the government cannot just kind of uh, ignore it as, as its li- liking. But we are supporting NATO in many ways. We are uh, um, supporting, we are, We have troops in Romania and Lithuania, we have supported the Ukrainians in uh, in medical supplies for their military, we have even rehabilitated their military hospital. We have given them a completely new field hospital. We have uh, treated about 200 uh, Ukrainian soldiers and civilians who were severely wounded in the conflict. Mm -hmm. And I would like to talk much longer about how it looks like in these areas that are under control of the Russian-backed separatists one of the big humanitarian disasters in the
0: world at the moment on, the, on, on that note we're going to invite you back because we're out of time for this discussion but you you, you set the table for our next discussion wolfgang messinger uh, he is the council general uh, for germany in chicago our thanks to gene bishop and judith sherwin for joining us this evening fritz goldman helped make this program possible i'm bruce dumont good night from beyond the beltway in elk Grove village illinois